Galatians 4, 1 through 20. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. There was a period of time, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, in my neighborhood where the real estate market was crazy. I mean, when my neighbors would want to need to sell their house, they wouldn't even put a sign in the yard. They would just tell other people in the neighborhood, we're wanting to sell. This is what we want for it. And by the end of the day, they'd have nine, 10 offers in cash. I mean, houses were going incredibly fast. And in fact, during that time period, I got a text message from a real estate agent that I know uh, offering me what I thought was an outrageous amount of money for my house. And in fact, in that moment in my mind, I sold my house. And so it's about a 15-minute drive from my house to, uh, from my work to my house. So I'm driving home, and in my mind, I'm spending all the money that I've just made on the sale of my house. I'm putting money in the kids' college funds. I'm probably buying some golf equipment. You know, I, I've got lots of plans for this money. And I walk into my house, and I tell my wife of my financial genius and all the great things we're going to do with it. And then she looks at me. She listens very patiently. Then she looks at me and asks me a question that the entire time I had not considered. She says, where will we live? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's a seller's market. That's true. I'm sure we could do well on our house, but that's going to work against us when we go to buy a house and we do have to live somewhere. And I had not thought of that the entire time. I had thought about what I was leaving, but I had not thought about where I was going. In my experience, when people hear the message of the Bible and turn away from it, they follow a similar kind of short-sighted logic. What I, what I mean by that is that, listen, Christianity is a really big claim 
And if true, has implications for your entire life. So you should never apologize for asking really hard questions of Christianity, with wrestling with the answers that you get. Don't ever apologize for that. But it also follows that the same hard questions should really be asked about wherever you would go instead. If you leave the Christian faith to go somewhere else, you gotta ask that, that new thing the same kind of questions. And in my experience, people don't often do that. That is, by the way, exactly what Galatians 4, verses 1 through 20, is all about. So if you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it to Galatians chapter 4, your phone, your tablet, however you want to get there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we make them available to you here in the West Service or over in the East Service, and I'm actually preaching from that Bible, so I can tell you that today's reading is on page 915. And as you get there, let me hold out to you an outline that I'm going to use to guide our time together and to wrestle with this idea of leaving. Three things, and they go like this. I want to talk to you about a rhythm, a resume, and a realization. Okay, a rhythm, a resume, and a realization. All right, let's start with a rhythm. Uh, Dr. Keith Yandel was a religion and philosophy professor at the University of Wisconsin for a long time. Uh, don't let that bother you. He got his PhD from Ohio State, so. <laughs> And uh, he, he was an incredible scholar, just passed away a couple years ago, and I really appreciate a lot of his writings. But one of the ideas that he contributed to the conversation about religion and comparing religions that I think is super helpful is that Dr. Yandel said every religion can be distilled down to two simple parts. He called them diagnosis and cure. Diagnosis and cure. And Dr. Yandel said that every religion boils down basically to this. It tells us what is wrong with us or what is wrong with the world, what's broken, and it offers a treatment plan or a way forward. It's a diagnosis and a cure. It really doesn't matter if you're talking about Islam or Buddhism or, or Judaism or Christianity. It really doesn't matter. It's diagnosis and cure. Something wrong and a way to fix it. In this way, Dr. Yandel's point was that every religion functionally makes two claims on us. It asks us to trust and to obey. Trust in the diagnosis it's offering. When it tells us, hey, here's what's wrong with the world, it's asking us to trust that that perspective is right. And then it's asking us to obey the treatment plan that it is offering. Trust and obey. Diagnosis and cure. One of the reasons I love Dr. Yandel's work is because he captures this idea that really, fundamentally, all of us are religious. Sure, you can distill all the organized religions down to diagnosis and cure, trust and obey, but even if you're not religious, even if you don't belong to an organized religion, you aren't going to synagogue or mosque or church every week, you still fall under this diagnosis and cure, this trust and obey dynamic. All of us are thinking that something is wrong with the world or something is wrong with us and we are trusting something or someone or some way to put that back together. And that something can be any number of things. But what Yandel captures so well is that if you think about it this way, the workaholic and the family guy are actually the same. 
Even though they appear on the surface to be super different, one stays late at work, one does his work at home, says no to family events so that he can move up in professional success. The other cuts corners at work, leaves early, never brings his work home so that he can say yes to his wife and his children. On the surface, they couldn't be more different. But underneath, each of them might be answering it differently, but they're asking the same question. How do I find meaning and purpose? What will take me there? In this way, we're all kind of like the game Jenga. Do you remember that game? The wooden block tower game where you would each take turns removing a block until the tower falls. It's one of those terrible time suck games because if you play with four, once one person knocks the tower down, you have to play again with three and you keep playing until the game, there's only one left, which is why at my house, we never play. It takes way too long. But the game of Jenga always hinges on the idea that there is one block that if you remove it, the tower will fall. And all of us, Dr. Yandel say, says, live that way. All of us are, because of our diagnosis, because of our cure, because of our trust, because of our obedience, all of us are building lives around something. That one thing that we believe we have to have, our career, our marriage, our children, our material possessions, our financial security, the answers can vary. There could be one different one for every single person in this room, but the idea is the same. We are building lives based on trust and obedience because every single answer to what's that foundational block requires a particular kind of life from us. It will ask for our obedience. And Paul is saying to the Galatian church that they are at risk of leaving Christianity and replacing that Jenga block with something else. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10. I'll read it to you. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Paul is challenging the Galatians because they are going back to paganism. Paganism, which was the prevailing spiritual idea of their day, is probably something you're not super familiar with, so let me explain it to you. If you have any understanding of Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you'll get it a little bit because paganism is the idea that behind everything is a spirit. So in paganism, you'd have a spirit of the harvest, a spirit of the storm, a spirit of the sea. And the idea was, if you wanted good things from fertility or, or food or, or safety, you would have to observe days and seasons and holidays, festivals, where you would be doing what was right in order that you could expect good things from the spirit behind those things. Or conversely, if you found yourself unable to have children or on the ocean in the midst of a storm, you would begin to sacrifice and find ways of appeasing the spirit or God that you must have made angry. And Paul is saying you're, you're going back to building lives around this jingle block of these spirits or these gods, and it's leading you to a particular kind of life. 
And what he says is that the fundamental problem with this is that the things you're trusting in aren't actually God. He calls them non-gods. He says, the thing is, you're building lives around things which are making promises to you that they cannot keep. They're writing checks that they cannot cash. You're, you're sacrificing to a festival spirit, to a harvest spirit. But the next year, when your harvest isn't plentiful, you don't connect the dots. The things you're trusting in can't actually help you. And not only that, he says, not only can they not help you, but the consequence, the result, is that you're enslaved to them. You're constantly having to do the things that they're asking you to do in order to try to keep up the promise that they're offering you that they couldn't possibly keep. You see, Paul is tapping into their diagnosis and cure to their religion, and he's also tapping into ours. Because no matter where you are with the God of the Bible, no matter where you are with Christianity, you will find something that you think will lead you to a meaningful life. You will find something that offers purpose, satisfaction, fulfillment, that offers to save you, if you will. And because you are trusting in that thing, you will do what it takes. That's why the guy who stays at work late sneers at the guy who leaves work early and says, what an idiot, because he can't understand why he doesn't realize the path to meaning is staying late. But the other guy says the same thing right back to him. We're all trusting in something. By the way, if you've wondered why political discourse in our country right now is worse than it has ever been, it's because many of us, the diagnosis and cure that we're grabbing hold of is the religion of our political party. They're telling us they know what's wrong with the world and that they know how to fix it and we aren't responding to our opponents anymore with political debate or dialogue. We're responding with the intensity and fervor of people defending their religion. We will find something to trust in. Marriage, family, children. But all those things in the end Will they actually give us what they promised to give us? And Paul says, the answer is no. What is the thing that you are holding on to? What is the Jenga block that if we took it away, if we took it out of your life, the tower would crumble? Paul is warning you, warning me, warning us not to put our trust in that thing. And the reason why, he says, is because its resume will not support it. That's actually my second point. Not just that there's a rhythm to our worship, diagnosis and cure, trust and obey, but also that the question that we need to be asking is, why am I so sure that this thing will provide me what I think it will? Because I have to tell you, I think what you're going to find is the thing we're trusting in is lying to us. I'll give you an example. You know, even if you have kids and even if they're wonderful, I can tell you that my daughters years ago told me that when they grew up, they were going to buy the house on either side of mine. Now, a few years have gone by and they're saying, well, try to stay in Ohio, Dad. Okay, they're liars. Okay, they are liars. They are liars. It's so interesting to me because before I came here to CCC, I was pastoring a church in, in Cleveland, in University Circle. And there I was dealing with people who I would call pre-wealth. 
They were people who were at the beginning stages of their career or the latter stages of their education. They were gonna go on to be doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, right? And they were destined to do really well and make a lot of money and then go to someone else's church. That was kind of our rhythm. And what was so interesting to me is that they were so sure that if they achieved the success they were chasing, life would have meaning and fulfillment. Then fast forward in my life to now being a pastor here, where actually the people I'm pastoring, many of them are at the latter stages of that very life. They've made partner. They've become a doctor. They are practicing law. They are an entrepreneur. They've sold the business. And I have to tell you, they're not any happier. And Paul is saying, what's the resume? And he's challenging us that this is why the God of the Bible belongs as the Jenga block of our lives. In fact, he's going to give us God's resume in some of the most beautiful verses in all of the book of Galatians in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what he says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says, here's the resume of the God of the Bible. He gives it to us in three parts. First, he has proven that when he makes promises, he keeps them. That's what the reference to fullness of time is. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible comes to us in two parts. You could call them Act 1 and Act 2. Unfortunately, they've come to be known as the Old Testament and the New Testament, which I hate because who wants to read the Old Testament if there's a new one? That's like me saying I have an old sandwich or a new sandwich. Which one do you want? No one picks the old sandwich. No one wants to read the Old Testament, but it isn't that. It's act one and act two, and in between you get popcorn and go to the bathroom. That's how you should understand the Bible. And the entire point of act one of the Bible, the entire point, spoiler, so if you haven't read it, here's what it's about, is God making crazy promises and keeping them. God making crazy promises and keeping them. The whole point of act one is God establishing a resume as a crazy promise maker and a faithful promise keeper. So he tells Noah in Genesis six, build a boat, it's going to flood. And you think, what? And then it does. God tells Abraham, an older man with an older wife who, have, who has not been able to have children, start walking because I'm going to make a family from the two of you that's going to bless the entire earth. And he does. God tells Moses, a fugitive from justice with a speech impediment, go talk to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and watch because of you, he will let my people go. And he does. Time and time again, God is making crazy promises and keeping them so that you and I would know his resume. God knows we're hardwired to find something to trust, something to obey, to listen to someone's diagnosis and someone's cure. And he knows the idea that we should listen to him is not easy. So he writes the entire first half of the book establishing, I make crazy, awesome promises and I always keep them. And the second part of God's resume is that all that promise-making, promise-keeping is designed to get us ready for the greatest promise, which is the promise of Jesus Christ. That God would send his own son 
who would live the life you and I cannot live, righteous, keeping the law, morally upright before God, and yet would go to the cross and on the cross take on all of our sin and all of our rebellion and all of our distrust. And God would pour out his anger onto Jesus and his wrath and his judgment onto Jesus every single drop so that when Jesus dies, there's no anger left. There's no wrath or judgment left. And Jesus would die. And three days later, he would raise from the dead. And God would say, if you grab a hold of him, you can be forgiven and loved and justified and you say, that's a crazy promise. And God says, that's what I do. I make crazy promises and I keep them. You see, when Jesus dies and then he raises from the dead, he is saying to us, God's promises will last even when you die. Can work say that? Can your children make you that promise? about your marriage. You see, God says that what you need is a promise you can trust even in death. What you need is a promise you can trust even with your guilt, even with your shame, even with your regret. And he says that promise is Jesus, that you can be forgiven and accepted and loved through him. And then here's the third part of the promise of God is that ultimately his desire is to share everything with us. This is why Paul says that we've been given a promise to become sons and daughters, and if sons or daughters, then heirs. You see, here's what I want you to understand. It is true that if you are a Christian, if you become a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, then you just, you, you must trust Jesus and also obey him. That is true. But I want you, please hear me on this. The alternative is not freedom. It isn't obey Jesus or do what you want. It's obey Jesus or decide that professional success will give you fulfillment and then you're obeying them. Or trust that your children will give your life meaning and then you're obeying them. See, Paul says there's a difference between the way a master treats a slave. The master doesn't actually care about the slave, just cares about getting the job done. And I'm just telling you, that's how they feel about you at work. That's how your toddler feels about you. And oftentimes we come to find out that's how our spouse felt about us. But Paul says, but God sees us as children, as future heirs. And you know what it means to be an heir? It means that every dollar the business makes is really yours. So when God tells you no, when God tells you yes, when God tells you stop, when he tells you go, when he tells you not yet, it's always because he's leading you somewhere wonderful. He's not using you. He's leading you to everything he's promised. You see, it isn't Jesus or freedom. It's Jesus or slavery. And Paul says, only God, only the God of the Bible has this resume for you. You're going to have a Jenga block, but Paul says, who else could make this argument to be that block? And that leads me to my third point, which is to push you, to challenge you. In the same way Paul is challenging me, to realize the foolishness of building a life around anything other than God. 
It is interesting to me that in some ways we have never been freer in our culture to choose our own religion. The internet, information, access we have to information, we've never been freer to build a life based on anything. If you wanna build a life based around sex, you don't even have to leave your house. You can chase anything you want. You can find meaning and fulfillment in anything you want. And if there's any rule in our culture, it's that no one can judge you for it. So let me ask you a question. If we've never been freer than we are right now, why are we more depressed than we've ever been? Why are we more anxious than we've ever been? More lonely than we've ever been? More angry? than we've ever been, more divided than we've ever been. It's because the things we're building our lives around are not for us. They are against us. They're not helping us. They're enslaving us. Are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Have you found purpose? Paul says, that the call of each of us is to realize that the only one worthy of being that jingle block is Jesus. Because every promise he makes, he keeps. Because every promise is ultimately a promise of love leading us to sharing his kingdom with him forever. This is baptism weekend here at CCC. I love baptism weekend. We're baptizing 18 people today. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. Every single one of those people, what they're saying to you when they get in the tub is that the jingle block of my life is Jesus. Because he makes promises and keeps them. Even when we baptize them, we'll lower them into the water representing the fact that they will one day die. We are all going to die. And then we raise them up, representing that the promise of God will remain even after their death. And some of the people we baptize are 12. Some of them are in their 70s. Death seems closer or farther away for each one of them based on where they are, at least from our perspective. But all of them are saying, here's why I'm a Christian. I've come to believe that only God will keep his promises even when I die. Every one of us is trusting something. Every one of us is obeying something. The only question is whether we want to be children and heirs of God or slaves. So which do you choose? What do you want? What do you believe? Don't just ask questions about what you're leaving, about what you're selling. Ask them about where you're going and about what you're buying. Let me pray for us. Father God, the modern paganism of this world is so entrenched in our hearts and in our minds. It's at our fingertips, in our phones, every single second. So we are utterly at your mercy for you through the power of your Holy Spirit to do what no 25-minute sermon can, and that set us free from false promises that enslave us to false gods. Lead us, everyone, to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.